I'll tell you a story about a very loving family. They had this adorable little girl. She was four and a half, almost five. And she's with her mom at the dollar store one day. And she saw the cutest necklace. Now, they were plastic. She didn't care. But it looked like pearls. And she said, oh, mom, can I have it? Can I have it? Mom, can I have it? Can I have it? And her mom was one of these parents who didn't want her kid to grow up spoiled. Now, you know, you're going to have to save a little bit. You've got to take some money out of your piggy bank. Okay, okay. And you're going to have to do a couple extra chores. Okay, okay. Please, 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 mom. Yes, we can have it. Oh, she was thrilled. She loved these pearls, wore them everywhere. Wore them to the store, wore them to the picnic, wore them when company was over. She even wore her pearls a couple times when she was taking a bath. Just loved these little pearls. They were her favorite possession after a very brief period of time. One day her dad came into her room and to kiss her goodnight as he always did. And he said, sweetheart, you love daddy. Like, yeah, yeah, you know daddy loves you. Yeah. Would you show daddy you love him by letting him have the pearls? She said, the pearls? Oh, oh, well, daddy, oh, why don't, oh, I got a little, you can have my little pony, pony spots, my favorite pony, you can have spot, but not the pearls. He said, that's all right, sweetheart, I love you. Kissed her goodnight. A couple weeks later, came into her room. Hey, sweetheart, I, I, you know, now you know daddy loves you. Yes, you love daddy. Yes, I love you, daddy. Do you think you could express your love to daddy by letting daddy have the pearls? The pearls? Oh, but no, you, you, can, you can have Sally. That's my favorite doll. And she's got all kinds of great clothes with her. You can have Sally in all of her clothes. He said, no, that's all right. He said, I love you. She said, I love you too, daddy. No problem. A few weeks later, he came into his little girl's room. And uh, he noticed she looked so sad. She was holding her hands like this. And he said, sweetheart, what's wrong? She couldn't even talk. Her little lip began to tremble and she just bowed her head and she she reached out and gave. She said, these are for you, daddy. Her voice quivering. She gave him the pearls. He said, oh, sweetheart, thank you. And he loved her. I love you, too. And she thought he was just going to take the pearls. But he took the pearls from her. And then with his other hand, he put something in her hand. And she'd been crying. She wiped her eyes and looked. And it was the most beautiful box she'd ever seen. It was blue and it was covered with some kind of soft material. What's, what's on this box? That This is so soft. He said, that's velvet. She said, oh, this is for me? Oh, yes. She opened it up. A brand new string of real pearls. Her daddy had just been waiting for her to give up the dollar store. Plastic stuff. So she could get the real pearls from her daddy. Now she knew her daddy loved her and her mom too. She knew she she knew they loved, but she did not realize how giving her daddy was until that night. And brothers and sisters, we are like that with God sometimes. Because our God gives and he gives. And he gives and he gives. Now, sometimes he wants us to give up our plastic dime store, dollar store stuff so we can get the real blessing of peace and healing and godly living and godly thinking and salvation from him. But sometimes God's not even asking us to give up anything. We don't even have to give up the little pony. He's saying, I want this. And we're so convinced that we have life figured out. We say, that's OK, God. I got this. He is the God who gives and gives and gives. And we're going to look today at how the Lord Jesus in particular gives. And what's interesting, I know this is Palm Sunday. We won't do a traditional Palm Sunday service. We're going to be talking about how the Lord Jesus gives, not just at the cross, but literally as he's on his way to the cross. There's some amazing things that the Lord shows us of how he loves us so much that he gives. As he's on his way to the cross, we're in the five part sermon series. This is part four on the cross. And today we're going to look at Jesus on his way to the cross. Would you come with me to Mark 15 and we're going to start at verse 11. Come on, let's take a look at God's word. Mark 15. And thank you for standing. <clears throat> we stand here to honor the word of God. Which is perfect. It's never wrong. Amen. We're wrong sometimes, but God's word is not, not ever. Beginning with verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. 
Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him! Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called, they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him, put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with murder drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. If we could put the title up on the screen, my prayer is to draw from these holy scriptures the subject, Jesus, the greatest giver in the universe. That's our subject today. Jesus, the greatest giver in the universe. Could you say that together? Jesus, the greatest giver in the universe. Yes, indeed. And please take your seats. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for how much you love us. We thank you that we can trust you and that there is no body like you. You are so giving and so loving that sometimes we forget. Show us your giving. Show us your love. And we pray if there's one woman, one man who doesn't know you, that you would save him or her today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's painful to read these passages because Jesus is suffering so much. But his suffering is redemptive. It is for us and for everybody. Even before this passage, there's more suffering that he's gone through. You can go back and read it if you want. And Mark and other uh, gospel writers, he has been punched and beaten already, even before he gets to the governor's palace, the Praetorium, where he's before Pilate, who's who's the governor, basically. They played this game. This is what uh, historians and Bible scholars would tell us. And they would put a hood over the prisoner. Most prisoners were treated like this, especially if they were going to be crucified, going to be killed. That was reserved, by the way, crucifixion for the worst, the worst of the criminals, the worst. It's a form of execution. And they would put the hood over their face and punch the guys, just just hit them and then take the hood off and say, hey, it show they'll all show their fist. Who hit you? Because they'd all hit him except one. And no matter what he said. No matter what that person said, they would say, oh, no, you got it wrong. We'll have to hit you again. So they played this game with Jesus. They beat him. They beat him. And all this is for you and me. That's how much he loves us. Until Isaiah says in chapter 52, he prophesied that Jesus' face would be marred more than that of any human being. In other words, he was beaten so badly, no one could have recognized him. He's already suffered that. And now he's before these people who are trying to decide who's going to be let go. Is it going to be Barabbas or Jesus? It's painful for me to look at this because I'm looking at 2000 years of Christian history. I'm looking at what Jesus has done in my life and my wife's life and our kids lives and the lives of people in this church and Christian churches all over the world. And I can't imagine that you can have a choice between Jesus Christ, the savior of the world and anybody, let alone some murderer. And pick this dude over here. Y'all crazy? That's what comes to my mind. But they picked Barabbas. Now, one of the odd things is that, at least in my life, most of the time when I've heard a a Palm Sunday message, I've heard uh, the thinking, and some Bible scholars would say this, that isn't it strange that you've got the crowd 
on Palm Sunday saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That means save us, save us. Oh, and Jesus is riding in on a donkey. He's the king coming in peace. Oh, isn't it great? And then just a week later, crucify him. And the assumption is that it's the same crowd. That's possible. But I want to submit to you, it probably wasn't the same crowd. Let me explain why. If you look uh, at, at the earlier part of Mark 15, when Mark 15, the earlier part, you'll see that the Sanhedrin had already had another trial for Jesus. It was illegal. It was done at night, secretly. They weren't supposed to do this. So they broke their rules because they wanted to get rid of Jesus. There was hatred in their hearts. And after that trial, they decided to send him to the governor because they were hoping that he would get executed. But since nobody knew about this and this was done in secret, Jesus' followers were all scattered saying, oh, no, he's been arrested. He's been arrested. They wouldn't have been around the next day. No one would know what was going to happen. But here's who would know about this trial before the governor. Barabbas' friends. Here's why. Every year at Passover, to celebrate Passover, they would let one prisoner lived. That was the custom. Now you remember the Old Testament beautiful story of Passover. God's people have been through these horrible things. They've been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. The death angel comes and God tells his people, if you want to live, follow me. Oh, there's a sermon there. Amen. If you want to live, follow me. Here's how I follow God. I'm going to make sure that you put this blood, lamb's blood. How beautiful is that? The blood of the lamb. Over your doorpost and the angel will do what? Pass over your house. You remember that story. So to respect Passover every year, the governor would let somebody go. Somebody who was going to die would get to live. That was the idea. Now, Barabbas' friends knew this was coming, so it's Passover. They probably all showed up. Let's let him go free. They didn't think of him as a murderer or an insurrectionist. Their thinking was he fought the Roman government, which is oppressive, and it was oppressive. He, he did some tough things. Okay, some people died, but he's our hero. We want Barabbas to go. And unfortunately, the chief priests showed up. Because the people who should have cared about Jesus, who should have been religious folks who were looking out for the Messiah, saw him as a threat and they wanted to get rid of him, too. So between the chief priests and the friends of Barabbas, that was probably this crowd, a different crowd from the Palm Sunday crowd, most likely. And they were saying, Jesus, crucify him. Barabbas is the one that you should let go. And Pilate is trying to weigh these options. He doesn't know what to do. We know from another gospel writer that his wife said, honey, I know she called him honey, but that's what my wife calls me. Honey, please don't have anything to do with this man. In other words, don't condemn him. I've suffered much in a dream because of this man. And Pilate made the big mistake of not listening to his wife. Do I get an amen? Thought so. From the sister. Brothers, we ought to say amen too. Come on. Come on. Amen. I'm saying it. He didn't listen to his wife. And so Barabbas, the crowd is saying, Barabbas, Barabbas, we want Barabbas to be the one released. He does that to try to appease them. Typical politician wants to please everybody. And then he says, well, we'll, we'll scourge him. Now, there's more suffering there in the scourging. And guess what? It's for us. Let me tell you what scourging is. That's verse 15 of our passage. There's a long leather strap. And embedded in this leather strap are pieces of sharpened bone and metal. The point of this is to make sure that the prisoner's back is exposed and to just rip at his back. Now, sometimes it was used as a whip, but my understanding is more often it was used to tear the flesh away. So what they would do, Jesus, if you've seen uh, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, you've seen it's a painful scene, horrible, bloody. His back is exposed and the person would put the scourge on him and then violently snatch it away. Intentionally trying to cause long, vicious, painful wounds on the back, on the shoulders, sometimes on the sides. Many prisoners never lived through the scourging. They died or they went crazy. Jesus was scourged and it created what Isaiah called stripes. Painful, horrible wounds. And you know what? Those stripes were for us. 
and the whole world, even before he went to the cross, Jesus was suffering for us because he wanted us to receive healing. Come with me to Isaiah 53. Let's take a look at this suffering servant passage. And if you don't know where Isaiah is, go to the middle of your Bible. That's Psalms and a few books to the right. You'll see Isaiah, Isaiah 53. We're going to look at verse three. This is called the suffering servant passage. Begins with the end of 52. Encourage you to read it someday. Beautiful. And if you're like me and some other people I know here, you're a fan of Handel's Messiah. You you will know these passages. Surely he has borne our griefs. But we'll start with verse three, the verse before Isaiah 53, three. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. This is prophecy. This happened at the trial uh, the night before when he was at the under the Sanhedrin and their so-called leadership. This happened at the trial. Where Pilate was the one making the decision. He was not esteemed. The guy who was an insurrectionist and a murderer was given the stay of execution at Passover. Not the Lamb of God. This is the truth of the word of God. It's, it's, it was prophesied hundreds of years before. Verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Here's the amazing thing. Somehow today when I'm hurting and you're hurting, when I have grief and you have grief, the Lord Jesus Christ has already, hear me, carried our griefs. He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. How does he do that? The Lord Jesus Christ knows. I have no idea. But it's as if Jesus came through time to where I am today. And there are some things I'm sad about today. Probably same thing for you. Some things that hurt today. And he comes here. And even though today I'm sad about this thing, Jesus has gone back in time to when the grief started. He's carried it through because he's not bound by time. Amen. He made time. He's not bound by time. So Jesus, who's not bound by time, literally carries this grief through to where I am in 2014, all the way to its conclusion. And it's done. I'm still here in the present going, ouch. But he's carried my griefs and my sorrows. Hallelujah. We ought to clap. Isn't it marvelous? And I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And verse five says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his what? Stripes, we are healed. That's the scourging. There's something about the scourging that he went through that brings us healing. And please understand, I do, do not believe that every time we pray for healing, we should get it like that. And if we don't, because we don't have enough faith. Now, I'm a ba- even if I did believe that, I'd be a bad candidate because I have on glasses. And I suspect that some of these people who say, if you're sick and you you stay sick and you, you know, don't have faith and that's why you're sick. You just need some more faith. You know, that kind of stuff. I wonder how many of those folks wear glasses. Really? Or contacts? Come on now. Now, God can heal. He is a God who's powerful enough, but he's also sovereign. Here's what I do know. If he's carried my griefs. If he's borne my griefs and carried my sorrows and yours, it means that he is with me through it all from beginning to the middle to the end. And there's healing that Jesus is with me. Amen. That's where the healing of the stripes comes for sure. And of course, God can heal us physically and emotionally as well, because he didn't just suffer for our physical hurts, even our emotional hurts, our griefs and our sorrows, anything that hurts. He suffered infinitely more than we could have. And there's healing in him. And that's point number one. If we could put that on the screen, please. Point number one. Point number one. Jesus has given us healing from our wounds. Jesus has given us healing from our wounds. Can we say that together? Jesus has given us healing from our wounds. It's past. It's done. Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. I went through a difficult time a number of years ago. And God was with me, but I don't think I could see it at the time. At least 
not all the way through it. I was working for an organization that was not a Christian organization. It was kind of between ministry appointments. You've got to do what God's called you to do. And uh, we were an organization that helped people where they had at least one child with mental health challenges. And we were doing a lot of good helping people in the community and all of this. And some of my coworkers were Christians. Many were not. And then one day we looked up and one of the best managers we had just got thrown out the door, disappeared, and we didn't know why. We got a voicemail. And Smith is no longer an employee at this organization. If you have any questions, please feel free to ask your supervisors. But we will not be able to give you too many details because we want to respect her privacy. Have a good day. What? Then a few months later, Bob Smith gets thrown out. These are some of the best people we know. Then it's Charlotte Smith. Wait, and Bob, Charlotte, somebody going through the alphabet? This is crazy. What we didn't know is there was a manager who might well have been a little bit nuts, who was the kind of person, if she thought you were a threat, she was not above lying on you to get you fired. Fire you, walk you to your car, then she wants to give you a hug. That really happened to a friend of mine. It was difficult. So everybody was stressed. Not all of us knew that she was behind it, but after a while you could kind of figure it out. Now she was very bright, and I've forgiven her, so I'm going to call her doctor. She might well have had a PhD, I cannot remember, but I'm going to call her doctor. But since what she did was nuts, I'm going to call her Dr. Nuts. I don't want to give you the real name, because that would not honor the Lord. So Dr. Nuts was that kind of person. She would just throw people out on their ear and she was way up in management. And so we were all stressed, worried that we could lose our jobs. And it was more stressful for me because at that time, my mom, uh, my dad had gone home to be with the Lord. So my mom was a widow. By the way, my mom's here. She's wearing that lovely dress in the front. I'll give her a hand. You don't have to stand, Mom. But make sure you greet her after church. And, and I wanted to help my mom. This was my first opportunity to buy a house. I'd never had any equity, never owned a home, and I wanted to help my mom buy this house. But I knew if I lost my job, not only can I, did I have the problem of losing the job, I can't help my mom buy the house. So I was really stressed. And you know how it is if you're blessed to be a homeowner. You know, you've got to send all that. They want this account and that account. And they want to know your mother's maiden name and your shoe size. And, you know, what do you do in your spare time? Do you have any friends who are terrorists and all kinds of just nonsense? Good grief. So I'm going through all of that and stressed about my job. But there were some believers at this organization, and we all began to pray, several of us, that, you know, Lord, this, what this lady's doing, she's really smart, but this is wrong, this is terrible. It, 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 some of it just looks vicious and evil. Would you please remove her? We did pray, a little bit. A little bit. I can't say I had great faith, but I, I did pray. But there, there was a part of me that was just, you know, going, 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 trying to do a good job. And then I noticed, you could tell by the way she talked to you, whether you were on her let's get rid of them list, and I knew I was. And so I thought, okay, now what's the biblical thing? I'm supposed to confront, you know, speak the truth in love. So I had my little plan. Here was my plan. You know how you come up with a plan? You think it's a good plan? This is my Marcus plan. I'm going to confront her in love and say the organization says literally now we are a strength-based organization. You treat people as if you only want people to know about the weaknesses in public. That is wrong. You should treat people differently. This is not right. So that was my plan. But I had a vacation coming up. So my plan, go on vacation, come back, confront Dr. Nuts and tell her this is not right. May not go well, but I needed to I needed to get it off my chest and maybe it would help her be a better manager. I go on vacation and I'm 2000 miles away in a church and the preacher is preaching from a passage you don't need to turn to. I'll read it to you. Second Chronicles 20, verse 17. Here's what that verse says. Second Chronicles 20, verse 17. You will not need to fight in this battle. It's first verse, first part of the verse. Position yourselves, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, by the way, tomorrow was Monday. I'm going to be back at work. Tomorrow, go out against them for the Lord is with you. I said, praise God, that's my answer. I'm, you know, maybe I don't even have to fight. Let's just see what happens. So I'm ready to come back. I'm going to confront Dr. Nuts, tell her what she needs to do. I get there and find out Monday she is gone. She's leaving the organization. And not only did God do that, but he, she was gone because her husband had gotten a wonderful, prestigious job on another continent, in another country. So this nut was going to be 7,000 miles away. Let me tell you, this Christian went back to his office and was partying like, oh, thank you, Lord. Praise God. Woo, you're so good. And then at the end, hear me, at the end of that healing time, please hear me, I started to realize that God had been walking with me 
at the beginning, in the middle, and through the end. That's the healing. By his stripes, we are healed. If I had known Isaiah better, I might not have been so stressed. The healing didn't happen right away. I don't believe when we pray for healing, it always happens right away. Sometimes we got to wait, but the healing happens because we're in the arms of the Lord. Do you hear me? There's a wonderful worship song that illustrates what I think is what God means by this healing. I sing a simple song of love to my Savior, to my Jesus. I'm grateful for the things you've done, my loving Savior. My precious Jesus, my heart is glad that you've called me your own. And there's no place I'd rather be than in your arms of love. In your arms of love, holding me still, holding me near in your arms of love. The healing doesn't always happen when we want it. Amen. Sometimes if it's physical sickness, you may stay sick for a long time. But if you know Jesus, the healing happens because you're in the arms of love of the master. Amen. And I want to say this. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, we'll talk about this later. His arms of love are stretched open wide like this. He's just waiting for you. He's waiting for you to turn your life over to him. He's waiting for you to become a follower of Jesus. He's waiting for you to become a Christian because he wants to wrap you up in his arms. The arms of love save you and make you a brand new person. Hallelujah. Somebody clap. That's the goodness of God. He's already suffered for you because he loves you. And he suffered Humbly, That's one of the things that jumps out to me when I look at the suffering of Jesus. Look with me at verse 16. We're back in Mark 15. We're back in Mark 15. Would you look with me at 16, please? Savior of the world. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. That's all the soldiers. And they clothed him with purple. That's the color of royalty. They're making fun of him. And they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head. Let me pause there. They twisted a crown of thorns. I think the King James says platted. That means braided. Do you know how hard you've got to work to get thorny branches? First of all, to pull them off of something. And maybe you get leather. I don't know if they had gloves back then. You get something so that the thorns don't rip you up. And to braid them into a crown to make fun of this guy. That somebody told you is king of the Jews, and then once you've platted it, you've, you've, you've braided it, then you stick it on his head. Do you see the viciousness? That takes time. And then we're saying, you think you're king? You're not the king. You're not the king. We'll put a purple robe on you, make fun of you. This is what they were doing, mocking him. Verse 18, and began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. That is so painful to read that. But that's what they did. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. This is false worship. They're mocking. I hope that one of these soldiers who mocked Jesus pretended to worship him. Got down on one knee. One day, heard about the cross. Knew that Jesus died. Knew that Jesus rose again. Knew that he appeared to hundreds of people. As the resurrected Christ whom we will celebrate next week at Easter. And that one of those soldiers came to know Jesus so he could truly bow down in worship and say, I love you, Jesus. Last time I got down on my knees, I was playing, but this is real worship. I pray that they did. Because the thought of these guys, yes, what they did was evil, but my sins are evil too. Amen. And so are yours. The thought of these guys burning in hell bothers me. Because if they didn't come to know him. Then out of their rejection, not just because of the sin, out of their rejection of him, they would end up in hell. They bowed the knee. But here's the beauty. One day, Philippians 2 says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's every knee in heaven, every knee on earth and every knee under the earth. Even the demons in hell and even the people who go to hell are going to have to admit one day that Jesus Christ is King of Kings. And when they bow the knee, it will be real. And they'll still be lost if they're down there. I can't wait for that day. I don't know about you. 
But this wasn't that day. They were mocking him. And when they had mocked him, verse 20, they took the purple off him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. There's mocking and there's torture. And Jesus handles it with humility. And that's point number two. We could put that on the screen. It's amazing. He's the king. Jesus gives himself the greatest giver in the universe. Jesus gives himself humbly. Let's say that together. Jesus gives himself humbly. We don't often suffer in humility, but Jesus does. Amen. I want you to see the torture even of the clothing. Now, Jesus comes with his own clothes. They take those off. Remember, he's been scourged. He has the stripes on his back. His shoulders probably have these horrible wounds. His sides probably have these horrible wounds from the scourging. When they take his clothes off, that is torture. Then they find a purple robe. That's the color of kings. And they put that on him. They put clothes on. That's torture. Then they mock him and spit on him and make fun of him. Then they take that robe off of him and put his own clothes on. And then he's going to be on his way to the cross, carrying the cross. He starts off carrying the cross. We'll talk about that in a minute. But then eventually when he gets to Calvary, they're going to take his own clothes off of him because to humiliate prisoners who were crucified, they would not let them be crucified with their own clothes on. So they were crucified with nothing on. Pictures that we see just are out of respect. And every time they put clothes on or take them off, it's torture. And Jesus, who's the king of kings, who has a royal diadem, who is the Lord, suffers humbly for me and for you. It's a challenge to me because when I suffer, I'm upset. I'm annoyed and I tend to ask this question. I don't know about you, Lord, why would you let this happen to me? Jesus didn't do that. I know he's God, but he's my model. Amen. And when I'm suffering, I need to learn how to suffer and not and, and do it with humility. Say, God, there's a purpose. I don't understand. Like Jesus, his, he knew his father had a purpose in all of this. And I need to suffer that way. You know, we're going through, it's not nearly as painful as what Jesus went through. Nothing we go through is, is as painful as what Jesus went through. Amen. But this is a painful time in the season of our church. I want to acknowledge that. And here's one of the pains that I am struggling with today. There are people I dearly love, with whom I love to worship, whom I don't see today and I won't see for a long time here. Maybe not at all. And I miss seeing those brothers and sisters. I miss getting a chance to run into them in the hallway and laughing with them and praying with them and talking with them. It doesn't even have to be pastoral. Just how are you? How are the kids? And I miss them. And it, it, it's a grief. But Isaiah is telling me that Jesus has already borne that grief and carried that sorrow for me. Amen. And that God is wrapping me up in his arms. And with Jesus' help, I can suffer through this. I can go through this with some humility instead of trying to convince everybody that, well, why don't you look at it the way I look at it? Why don't you take my perspective? It can just be, you know what? I love my brothers. I love my sisters. I miss them. And here's what I suspect. Wherever they are, they could be worshiping at this church or that, this one or that. It doesn't matter where they're worshiping today. They could be missing you or you or you. Or you, or me, or these two sisters over here. And they could be hurting too. They probably are. But God, because he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, carries us through and challenges us to suffer in a way, to go through a difficult time in a way that's humble. Instead of it's all about me, why would you let it happen to me? And I'm glad God is patient with us. Amen. It's not an easy thing to do, but he's patient. He allows us to learn how to be more humble before him. And in difficult times, we really need the Lord because those times we not only need some humility, we need some strength. And we'll see how God gives someone strength here. Uh, look with me. We're Mark 15. Look with me at verse 21. Fascinating man named Simon. Verse 21. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, of Cy a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's important. We'll get to that later. The father of Alexander and Rufus. As he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. You see, Simon was from North Africa. 
He was from what we would call Libya today. He was from Cyrene. Very strong Jewish contingent. And please hear me. Don't think in 2014 terms. When I say Jewish, there were people who were Jewish, who were blonde haired and blue and gray eyed. And some who looked more like what we think of as a Jewish person today, sort of this Israeli look, Mediterranean. And some who were jet black with kinky hair like mine and African features. Some who looked Asian, some who looked like they had the features of people from Spain because they were from what we now call Spain. Every race, every background. And in Cyrene, there was a large Jewish population. And most likely Simon was from there. So he had been saving, most likely, his whole life to come to worship in the temple at Jerusalem. Married couples, you know how it is. When you're saving for something important, you put a little money aside, put a little money aside. Oh, then the car goes out. Okay, all right. So it sets you back a little bit. Then you put a little money aside, you put a little money aside, put a little money. Somebody gets sick. Okay. You keep going. Honey, can we do it this year? Nope. Okay, well, we keep on praying. So he saved his whole life to get to the point where he could come to Jerusalem to worship in the temple at one of the great feasts, this time at Passover. Now hear me, he's from Cyrene. If he took a boat and if there were no storms, it's 700 miles. If he came by land, we'll see a map later, it was about a thousand miles. He's traveled a long way to get here. Here's what he wants to do this day. Simon wants to get there. He wants to go to the temple. He wants to worship. He doesn't want anything to keep him from getting to the temple so he can worship the Lord. He's up early. This is early in the morning, probably about daybreak. And now he's being forced to carry the cross of somebody he's never met. Couldn't recognize him because he's been beaten horribly. Has these awful scars on his back. He's bleeding. Bible scholars tell us what most likely happened is Jesus started off. You can read this later in John 19 verse 17. John 19, 17. Jesus started off carrying his cross. I'm betting it was the whole cross. So 80, 90, 100 pounds of wood on a back that has been ripped to shreds and has all the stripes that Isaiah prophesied about. You know how painful that is. He's been beaten. He's been hit with a rod. He's been slapped. He's been treated horribly. He's lost blood, probably in and out of consciousness at various points. And somehow, even though he's the son of God, his physical body evidently gave out. And at some point, Jesus probably collapsed. And there was a man there named Simon who probably didn't know him at that time, but just wanted to worship. And now a soldier is forcing him to do this. And let me tell you what I mean. Roman soldiers had the right to talk to anyone and they would take their sword and put the flat part of their sword on the person's shoulder and say, carry anything one mile. Jesus referred to this in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, if somebody compels you, he was saying to Christians, if someone forces you to carry something one mile, you should go with him not one mile, but two. He was talking about that. And so this Roman soldier puts this sword on Simon's shoulders and he's thinking, oh, you've got to be kidding me. My wife and I have been saving for years. I just want to go to Passover. What do I have to care? Now he's seeing the blood on this cross. Jewish people thought of the cross as 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 a cursed. One Bible scholar thinks it might have been the soldier might have been trying to harass Jewish people because he knew Jewish people thought of the cross as a cursed and they never wanted to be around blood, especially around Passover. So it's like, hey, guys, we got this one Jewish guy who calls himself the king of the Jews. Here's another. Look at the way the man is dressed. That's obvious. He's going to the temple. He's Jewish. Let's make that Jewish guy carry this Jewish guy's cross to us. That's funny. It could have been that nasty and sarcastic. But for whatever reason, this soldier Put the flat part of his blade on Simon's shoulder. Now he's got to carry this cross, which is bloody, and he is defiled. He cannot go to the temple, at least not right away. He could miss Passover, and he's tired, and he's frustrated. But somewhere along the line, he got the strength to carry this 80, 90, 100-pound cross all the way to Calvary. And he got it there for you and me. One Bible scholar put it this way. Other than Jesus Christ, that man, Simon of Cyrene, was the most important human 
being on the face of the earth that day because the cross had to get to Calvary so that my sins and your sins and the sins of the whole wide world could be washed away by the blood of Jesus. And somehow, somehow, God gave Simon the strength and that's point number three. This is what he does for us. This is what Jesus does for us. Jesus gives us strength in painful times. Jesus gives us strength in painful times. Let's say that together. Jesus gives us strength in painful times. There's a beautiful story of how it might have happened and I don't know. But this is, it may be a true story, it may be apocryphal, I don't know. But here's the story that evidently Simon told, and it's told in that part of the world. Simon said he was going along carrying this super heavy cross, 80, 90, 100 pounds. And it was heavy. And it was a burden. But at one point, Jesus the Christ. Simon found out later he's the son of God. Jesus the Christ reached out and touched Simon on the shoulder. And according to the story, from that point on, Simon could not feel the weight or the burden of the cross. All Simon could feel from that point on was the hand of Jesus on his shoulder. Now, whether it happened exactly like that, I don't know. That's the tradition. But doesn't that sound like our Savior? Doesn't that sound like our Lord? That when we're hurting, when we're going through something, when we're saying, God, I don't know how I'm going to drag this thing and my day's been interrupted and this wasn't what I planned and you messed things up. Oh, God, why did you let this interruption come and we're grumbling? God puts his hand, as it were, on our shoulder and he helps us drag whatever it is, wherever we're supposed to go. And then when we get there, we realize his hand was on our shoulder all along. That's who he is. He gives us strength in painful times. What a wonderful savior we have. And what I love about this is that he knew that he had to get to the cross so that our sins could be washed away. Look with me now at verse 23. We're still in Mark 15, verse 23. Mark 15. And it says this. Then they gave him wine mingled with murder drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Yes, the soldiers gambled for his clothes. Painful to read. But 23 is so critical. They wanted to give him wine mingled with myrrh. Now, after all of this horrible pain that he's been in, someone had compassion. The soldiers were gambling. They were very cold toward him. But someone had compassion and decided to give him wine mingled with myrrh. This was common for those who were being executed in this fashion it was terribly painful. And it was basically something that would deaden the pain. It was an anesthetic. But Jesus wouldn't take it. You know why? Because he knew that he was going to have to be wounded for our transgressions. He was going to have to be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that finally brought us peace was going to be upon him and by his stripes. We'd be healed spiritually, but he'd have to go to the cross and suffer it. Not at 80 percent, not at 70 percent, not at 40 percent, not even at ninety nine point nine percent. He had to go to the cross and suffer all the pain and the anguish for every human being who has lived, who would live ever so that we could have peace with God. That's point number four. If we could put that on the screen, please. Point number four. The greatest giver in the universe. What else does he give? The Lord Jesus gives us peace with him. That's point number four. Jesus gives us peace with him. Would you say that together with me? Jesus gives us peace with him. If you've met Jesus, you know, before you knew the Lord, did you have peace with God? Really? No. No. Then one day Jesus comes along. He's always been there. But I, I love how Titus says he appears. The grace of God appears in your life. It's a miracle. And the grace of God appears. You get saved. And now you have peace. It's like the T-shirt. You've seen it. No Jesus. That's the word. You know, if there's no Jesus, no peace. Right. 
But once you come to know Jesus, K-N-O-W, now in Christ, you know what it is to have peace with God. Amen. You've seen the T-shirt. You've seen the, 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 the license plate. That's the truth. The only way for us to have peace with God is for the Lord to have gone to the cross for us. He knew that because it's about our salvation. Come with me to verse 25. Mark 15, 25. Somber, beautiful, amazing passage. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. Jesus now is giving his life so that we can be saved. We'll talk about that. By the way, I hope that you come to Good Friday service this coming Friday and listen to Pastor Toby preach and sing the word of God. We're just coming up to the cross now. He gave his life. Point number five. Please put that up on the screen. Jesus gave his life for our salvation. Let's say that together. Jesus gave his life for our salvation. Now, Mark Along with all the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they all are very sensitive because crucifixion was horrible. They don't give you details. Everyone knew what it was, but they use this one word. They crucified him. In fact, in verse 24, it turns out Mark is the only gospel writer to use the vivid present tense and they crucify him in the original. You know how you're telling a story and you want it to be vivid. So you use present tense verbs, even though it happened in the past. Oh, I see this and I do this. And you're talking about the past. Mark does that in 24. And they crucify him. Now in verse 25. And they crucified him. But it was horrible. It was horrible. These heavy nails went through his hands. Now, in, in those days, this was all considered part of the hand. And so what we call the wrist would have been part of the hand. And he was nailed there and nails through his feet. He's on the cross. The only way to breathe is to pull himself up. Terrible pain in his arms, terrible pain in his feet, all the way up to take a breath and come back down. And every time he moves, all the stripes on his back must have been horribly painful, shockingly painful. But he knew he had to suffer this for you and for me because I couldn't pay for my sins if I tried. And you couldn't pay for your sins if you tried. And so Jesus came down and said, I'll do it myself. I'll take I will take on the sins of the world. I will die for the sins of everyone. That's what Jesus did. And I strongly believe that Simon of Cyrene, who carried that cross, saw this and it changed his life. Come with me very quickly to Acts 13, verse one. If you're in Mark, that's just a few books to your right. Acts 13. Look at verse 1 there. They're talking about the leaders of the church in Antioch. Here's what God's word says. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. These are all the leaders. Look at the names. Barnabas, Simeon. Now that's a Jewish form of the name. Guess what? Simon. Who was called Niger. That means he's black. He's from Africa. Get this, he's named right next to somebody from where? Cyrene, Lucius of Cyrene. Where do you think this Simeon was from? Probably Cyrene. This, I believe, was Simon of Cyrene. His wife was such a godly woman that it, in Acts or Romans 16, verse 13, you can read that later. Paul says, greet Rufus. That's his son. That's Simon of Cyrene's son. Greet Rufus and his mom, who's also my mom. So the wife of Simon of Cyrene evidently was such a godly woman. And St. Paul loved her so much. He basically said, Rufus, I know she's your mama, but she may as well be my mama because I just love her. His sons were well known. We saw because we were in Mark 15, verse 21. We saw that his son, it says Simon of Cyrene, the father of Rufus and Alexander. The church probably knew Rufus and Alexander more than they knew Simon. Everybody knew them because they loved the Lord. Church tradition says that Alexander not only got saved, but he became a missionary. And died on the mission field. And in 1941, they were doing an excavation outside of Jerusalem. And they found evidently the bones of this man, Alexander. And they looked on the lid of this box. It's a, it's a box with bones in it called an ossuary. And it said, Alexander, son of Simon. 
And they looked on the side, the other inscription there said, Alexander of Cyrene died on the mission field. And Rufus, the other son, tradition says, followed St. Paul to a city that we now call, in what we now call Spain, called Tortosa. Paul started the mission there, and Rufus, who is now St. Rufus, became the first bishop of that city. Here was the man who thought God had messed up his plans. He saved his whole life, 700, 900, 1,000 miles to come here. I'm not going to get to worship. He worshiped the Lord. That's one of the greatest acts of worship in history, dragging that cross all the way to Calvary. So my sins and your sins and the sins of the whole world could be washed away by the blessed blood of Jesus. Jesus Christ, who's the Lamb of God. You talk about Passover. Simon was, he was, he had Passover that day because the Lamb of God was the blessed Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. Simon's life was changed. His wife's life was changed. His sons came to know the Lord and served the Lord. What an amazing story. And it's amazing because God gave salvation. And I don't want you to miss this. God's gospel is for people of every race. Just for a moment, I want you to do this. Look around. Look at all the people here. Look at the people who don't look like you. Look at the people whose hair is different from yours. Eye color different from yours. Eye shape different from yours. Background different from yours. Maybe speak a different language. Maybe born in another country. Look at this. This is how the New Testament world looked. Please don't think that some of these Hollywood movies or other movies with everybody looking exactly the same are accurate. How could it be? In that part of the world, in the Mediterranean, you can't be kidding me. If we could put that map up, I want to show you. Please look at where the gospel came. Please understand this. This is where the gospel of Jesus Christ came. He didn't send it all the way to northern Europe, which would have been fine for the people in northern Europe. He didn't send the gospel all the way to the southern part of Africa. That would have been great for the Zulu people and other folks who were in South Africa. God sent the gospel on the right part of your map. You might be able to see it, Jerusalem. And then you see Cyrene in the middle under Mediterranean Sea. This is where God sent the gospel. Sink. The northern part of the map is what we call Europe. The eastern right part of the map is what we call Arabia and the Middle East. The southern part of the map is Africa. God sent the gospel to the part of the world where Africa and Europe and Asia and Arabia all come together because he wanted people to know that the gospel is not just for people of African or North African descent. The gospel is for Latinos and Native Americans and African Americans and Europe. European Americans and people who are Middle Eastern and people with round eyes and people with Asian eyes and black hair and blonde hair and red hair and brown hair. And today the gospel is for people with purple hair and green hair and any other kind of hair they've got, whether God gave it to them or not. Nothing wrong with that. The gospel is for everybody. And the Lord Jesus Christ came to wipe away our sins. He gave us salvation. He gave us life and he came came to that part of the world to let us know that that gospel is for people of every single race all around the world. Praise be to his name because he's the savior of the whole world. 